Hey audience, it's Tom. Before I start the show, I wanted to give a fair warning that this episode does involve discussion of political issues and my personal political views concerning free speech and censorship. Now, on with the show. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 36. Celebrate freedom. Read a banned book. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Do you know why books such as this are so important? Because they have quality. And what does the word quality mean? To me, it means texture. This book has pores. It has features. This book can go under the microscope. You'd find life under the glass, streaming past an infinite profusion. The more pores, the more truthfully recorded details of life per square inch you can get on a sheet of paper, the more literary you are. That's my definition anyway. Telling detail. Fresh detail. The good writers touch life often. The mediocre ones run a quick hand over her. The bad ones rape her and leave her for the flies. So now do you see why books are hated and feared? They show the pores in the face of life. The comfortable people want only wax moon faces, poreless, hairless, expressionless. We are living in a time when flowers are trying to live on flowers instead of growing on good rain and black loam. Even fireworks, for all their prettiness, come from the chemistry of the earth. Yet somehow we think we can grow feeding on flowers and fireworks without completing the cycle back to reality. Do you know the legend of Hercules and Antaeus? The giant wrestler whose strength was incredible so long as he stood firmly on the earth. But when he was held rootless in midair by Hercules, he perished easily. If there isn't something in that legend for us today in this city, in our time, then I am completely insane. That was from Ray Bradbury's novel Fahrenheit 451, a book that, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a dystopian novel set in a world where the ownership and reading of books is not only banned, but punishable. The main character, Guy Montag, is a fireman, but his job as a fireman is completely different from what you and I expect a fireman to be. His job is to burn the contraband books that his department finds. It's a powerful novel that hits on the themes of the need for education and information, as well as the harm we might be doing to ourselves as our technology gets more advanced and our lives become more and more convenient. I chose to open the show with this quote because this time around I'm going to be talking about Banned Books Week. The annual program sponsored by the American Library Association as well as, well as several other organizations including the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund that celebrates the First Amendment through showcasing books that have been challenged or banned in schools and public libraries in the United States. 
And this is episode 36 of Pop Culture Affidavit, which is a podcast about everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts. And I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Now, I could probably have chosen to start with a passage from one of my top two favorite books of all time, which are The Catcher in the Rye and To Kill a Mockingbird. But Fahrenheit is not only wholly appropriate considering its subject matter, it's a book that I was assigned in my sophomore year of high school and a book that I teach in my own sophomore English class every year. Furthermore, before I read Catcher in 11th grade, it was my favorite book overall. We read it sometime during the winter of that year, which was the 92-93 school year, and if I recall correctly, it was between Ethan Frome and Elie Wiesel's Night, another book that I teach every year. I was one of those students who pretty much just liked about everything that I read in high school, with a few notable exceptions. Funny enough, Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome was one of those exceptions. But anyway, so it's possible that I liked Fahrenheit because it got the taste of Frome out of my mouth, but... I think it's more that it was in my science fiction wheelhouse, and it's a damn good book if you haven't read it, to be completely honest with you. But I come here not to talk just about the Bradbury novel, although that would be a great podcast episode in itself. In fact, I'd love to do just a flat-out books and literature podcast episode somewhere down the line. Banned Books Week is every year in September, usually this the last full week of September. And I usually share some details about books that my students love or that my students will read that were challenged or banned in recent history. The Harry Potter series is one of the more ridiculous as is the Captain Underpants series, which has been one of the most, if not the most challenged series of books in recent years. And as I was looking through the list of banned books that the ALA provides, I started to see a lot of titles that I had read both in junior high and high school. So... I printed it out, got out a highlighter, and started highlighting them, and the final count is, well, out of all the books that I was assigned by my teachers in both junior high and high school, 18 of them have been challenged or banned in a school district or public library sometime in the last decade. And I'm sure a number of them were already on that list when I was in high school 20 years ago. But what does it mean for a book to be challenged or banned? After all, this is a free country right? It's not always that simple, however. Basically, what happens is that a book is assigned to a class or is purchased for a library. Someone takes offense to it being there or being assigned. They then go to a local governing body, say the school board, for instance, and try to have the particular book removed from the cl- that classroom or that library. The grounds upon which books are often challenged include racial content, foul language, depictions of alternative lifestyles, violence, sexual contact, age appropriateness, or general inappropriate content, which is something that can be incredibly vague, as can age appropriateness. For instance, here's a couple of examples taken from the American Library Association's list of books that were challenged or banned in 2013-2014. Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Temporarily removed from the Alamogordo, New Mexico High School Library and Curriculum in 2013 because of apparent calls, quote, inappropriate content. The British author wrote in The Guardian, quote, Mel, well-meaning adults can easily destroy a child's love of reading. 
Stop them reading what they enjoy or give them worthy but dull books that you like. The 21st century equivalents of Victorian, quote, improving literature, unquote. You'll wind up with a generation convinced that reading is uncool and worst, unpleasant. Another one, we have Persepolis, the story of a childhood by Marjane Satrapi. I'm probably butchering that name. I apologize. This, of course, is a very uh, famous graphic novel of recent years. Removed via a district directive from all Chicago, Illinois public schools in 2013 due to, quote, graphic illustrations and language and concerns about, quote, developmental preparedness and, quote, student readiness. 7th and 11th grade students study the graphic novel about the author's experience growing up in Iran during the Iranian Revolution as part of Chicago Public Schools' literacy content framework. As the news spread of the directive, students mobilized a media campaign in opposition to, quote, banning a book that's all about the freedom of speech. Students took to their Facebook and Twitter accounts, checked out all library copies of the book, wrote blogs, sent emails, wrote investigative articles for the student newspaper, contacted the author, staged protests, and appeared on local radio and television programs. Eventually, the school issued a letter telling high school principals to disregard the earlier order to pull the book. The book was the New York Times notable book, a Time Magazine Best Comics of the Year, and a San Francisco Chronicle and Los Angeles Times bestseller. A film version was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the 80th Academy Awards in 2007. Another one that has uh, that's on this list here that, that I wanted to bring up, I was actually bringing it up in class today when I was talking to my students, Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl, Diary of Anne Frank, which a lot of us are familiar with because we read it in junior high. Challenged but retained in the Northville, Michigan middle schools despite in 2013, despite anatomical descriptions in the book. Before the school district's vote, 10 free speech organizations signed a letter urging Northville School District to keep the book. The letter, which was sent to the superintendent and board of education members, emphasized the power and relatability of Frank's diary for middle school students. Frank's honest writings about her body and the changes she was undergoing during her two-year period of hiding from the Nazis in Amsterdam can serve as an excellent resource for students themselves undergoing these changes. The diary has now been published in more than 60 different languages and is on several lists of the top books of the 20th century. Now, in these three cases, there was opposition to the challenge, and many of the challenges do eventually get denied. I've never had this personally happen to me. I think the only time I've ever had something objected to is one of my classes was the time a student's mother did not want her to read Albert Camus' The Stranger for a summer reading assignment and asked for, uh, and, and thankfully there was another novel that we were reading as well, and I just said, well, just read the other novel and, and don't worry about it. But I have had two colleagues who have dealt with challenges exactly like these. The first was a fellow teacher of mine, English teacher of mine, who was teaching a young adult novel called Feed. Uh, that's a dystopian science fiction young adult novel that has its fair share of sex and foul language, which a lot of the dystopian YA pieces tend to have these days. A parent challenged the book despite prior notice about the book's being content sent, being sent home. You know, he sent home a notice about the book having foul language and things. The challenge actually went to the school board. It was unsuccessful because the book is still on the curriculum. Uh, much to some students' chagrin, I've heard mixed reviews of it, but that's that's a matter of opinion uh, as far as whether or not you like the book, not whether or not it, it should be removed from schools. 
The other challenge that I know of uh, personally was a colleague of mine who was co-teaching an AP U.S. History and an AP English course. One of his books assigned was um, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. The book wasn't the actual textbook for the class. It was a supplemental reading piece. The textbook was something that Prentice Hall published, like America, Our Country. You know, it's your typical high school English, uh, high school uh, history textbook. But Zinn's book was a supplemental work, and the book also came with, uh, when he assigned the book, he assigned a counterpoint work, one that actually directly addresses and criticizes Zinn's book. So you had a supplemental piece that was an alternative look at American history, a different look at American history, and then a piece that directly addressed and made criticisms of that alternative look at American history. That sounds pretty balanced to me, right? Well, nevertheless, the person protesting the book referred to it as, quote, un-American leftist propaganda. Funny enough, the challenge was not brought forward by anyone in his actual class or in the school, just by people in the community who felt the need to police the content of the schools and libraries. In fact, one of those people who brought the complaint was connected to a website that focused on and I quote, combating the fear and loathing of the white race, end quote. From what I understand, that challenge was not a winner either. Now, it's when someone decides that he or she doesn't want anyone to read a book that I tend to get more than a little testy, especially when they are coming from a place that has an obvious absence of understanding of the true content or context of a work of literature, or when they're obviously promoting an agenda and disguising it in some sort of quote-unquote concern for children. I personally am a parent of a seven-year-old boy, so that I know what it means to make judgment calls about things such as age appropriateness when you're talking about reading material or any sort of entertainment. Brett's the type of kid who will want to watch anything, to be honest with you, but at seven years old, he's not exactly ready for anything and everything. I mean, I'm going to obviously have to hold off and show him the exorcist for a few more years, right? But in all seriousness, part of my job as a parent is to keep an eye on what he's exposed to. And I still believe that if he's reading something or if he picks up something that might be a little too old for him, I tell him maybe we want to wait on that. But I also believe that as he gets older, my job is also to be there while he makes those choices for himself. My parents are pretty conservative people, to be honest with you, but they didn't. that didn't seem to extend to what I read and for the most part what I watched. I mean, granted, they thought my watching Platoon at the age of 10 was inappropriate, and that's why I didn't see it for years. And if you listen to my episode of In Country uh, about that movie, you'll see how I understand that um, all these years later. But they never stopped me from taking their copy of It Off the Shelves between the summer of 7th and 8th grade. And I consider that a very important moment in my life because it, as I said way back in like the second uh, episode of this podcast series, really was the first wholly adult novel in a sense that I read. It's also why I skipped over anything that would have been considered young adult or YA at the time. But then again, YA back in 1990 was not what it is now, so I don't think I would have really been missing anything. Anyway, I say this to get to the point that when Brett's old enough to read these things, I'd rather him read them and talk about them honestly with me rather than than having my be overprotective and prohibitive. Furthermore, I'd never want to turn somebody to to somebody else and say, "Ah, well, I don't want your kids reading this, which is basically what happened in the former case regarding feed that I mentioned. And honestly, the article in our local paper that had the interview with the parents should be a bit of a, how do you say nutcase 
in a nice way. The case with the Howard Zinn book is one where you'll get someone who's not, you've got someone who's not even affiliated with the class of the school pushing something because he has a specific political agenda. And not only that, he's obviously too narrow-minded to see why his argument itself is false. You may completely disagree what Howard Zinn presents in A People's History of the United States. And there are certainly parts of it that I found were stretching a little too much, as well as parts that were quite honestly kind of dry. But If you look at how it was being used in that course as a piece of supplemental material that was going to be critically analyzed and criticized by anyone who wanted to criticize it, I don't see where you can disagree with its use. The teacher was clearly using it as a way to think critically about American history, and then he was asking students to think critically about the book. If that's not truly a history class, I honestly don't know what is. And that's why banned book weeks basically exists and it's why I put this episode together because I think it's worth celebrating I personally consider the first amendment to the constitution one of the most important parts of our country's founding philosophy the idea that those who created our government would literally write in protections of our right to free speech religion press assembly and protest shows that they were daring and were honest about their intentions to create a government that was as Lincoln would later say by the people and for the people Now, whether or not that was ever fully realized and whether or not we truly have a democratic society is certainly up for debate. I'm not going to debate it here. But one of the great things about this country is that we are, according to one of our founding documents, allowed to have that debate in the first place. And educators are allowed to challenge students to think critically and expand their minds. Heck, we're encouraged to do that. Exposing a student to a philosophy different from his or her own is not indoctrination. If it was, I'd be fired for having students read The Stranger. (laughs) Indoctrination comes when a student is forced to think a certain way and is failed or punished because he refuses to agree with that point of view. I'm not saying it hasn't happened before. After all, you're talking about millions of students and teachers in the entire history of the American public school system. But the cries of indoctrination and the destruction of American values through our school system, I think because a certain book is being taught or a certain course material is being taught, are hyperbolic at best and rarely, if ever, hold water. I mean, if you want to attack anyone for damage to the American public school system, go look up a corporation named Pearson and then get back to me. My commentary about the state of our current public education system aside, one of the things that caught my eye about this year's Banned Books Week was not only that the American Library Association is one of the sponsors because it's been sponsoring it for years, but so is the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And the CBLDF is putting a focus on graphic novels and other comics that have been challenged or banned in schools and libraries. That's what I'm going to talk about after this. In-Country has re-upped for another tour and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In-Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. So, in case you're not familiar with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, it is an organization that advocates for free speech and the protection of the right of comic book stores and libraries to stock, stock comics and graphic novels. 
When a book is challenged in the matter that I described in the first part of the episode, CBLDF is one of the organizations that will provide resources for the school to the library's defense. In addition, they provide a number of resources to help everyone from parents to educators to librarians that advocate for the fight against censorship as well as offer other resources. When I was at the Baltimore Comic Con a couple of weeks ago, I spent some time at their booth and picked up some of their free resources, which were all in the form of comic books. And it's where I also bought my copy of Paul Pope's 100%, which I had signed. What I picked up was a free comic book day left over entitled Help the CBLDF Defend Comics and has stories about free speech in the history of comics code. This, by the way, was also the topic of the panel that I attended that Saturday. Jim Starlin sat and talked about the challenge he faced under the code when he was writing in the 1970s, especially on the comic Warlock. Uh, And what the discussion became was how the code's decline and eventual extinction came about. I actually had intended to include the entire panel in the episode, but even though I was sitting near the front of the room, I later discovered my audio was pretty terrible. But I did find the topic interesting because I've read so much about the creation of the code in the early days, as well as when Marvel published those drug issues of Spider-Man without the code, but not much about it when I was in my comic collecting heyday of the 80s and 90s. Basically, part of what killed the code was the direct market. The direct market titles didn't need to be code approved because they weren't going on a newsstand, and the code itself was eventually watered down due to the changing times and tastes in the audience and efforts to make the language less harsh on the comic book industry. I actually intend to do a longer show about the comics code one day. We'll probably try to get an interview with somebody from the CBLDF because this topic is, like I said, really fascinating, especially when you go on the stuff that we all know about vertum and seduction of the innocent and, and the very, very early days of the code. But two of the other publications that I picked up were Banned Books Week comic. I'll get to that in a second. And then there was one called Raising a Reader. And this is basically a parent's guide to getting their kids into comics and graphic novels. The educational value of those reading materials and what is considered age appropriate for certain ages. It's a nicely packaged guide, especially for those parents who aren't comics readers and collectors and who might still be under the impression that comic books are for kids. It was free, and there's a free electronic version available on the CBLEF website. I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes. The Celebrate Band Books Week comic is a handbook for those who want to participate in some way in Band Books Week and covers everything from why books are still censored, challenged, or banned to information on specific cases. I thought I'd take some time to highlight some of the more frequently challenged and banned comics so that we can at least get an idea of what comics are being challenged and why. I already mentioned Persepolis earlier in the episode, so I'll skip that one. And I'll highlight three most of you guys who are listening are probably familiar with. And because I'm lazy, I'm going to go read exactly what's in the CBLDF guide. First, we have Bone by Jeff Smith, which actually was the 10th most challenged book of 2013-2014. The location of key challenges are various, and the reasons challenged are drugs, alcohol, smoking, political viewpoint, racism, and violence. Although considered a modern comics classic that's delighted millions of readers all over the world, Bone is also one of the most commonly challenged books in American libraries. 
In April 2010, a Minnesota parent petitioned for the series removal from her son's school library over images she believed to be promoting drinking and smoking. The challenge was ultimately rejected by a 10 to 1 vote. In 2011, the entire series was removed from classrooms and districts in a New Mexico district with no oversight or review process. In early 2014, the ALA's Office of Intellectual Freedom posted their annual list of the 10 most challenged books. The list had many of the usual suspects and not one not-so-usual suspect, which was Bone. Bone secured the rank of 10th most challenged book of the year for, quote, political viewpoint, racism, violence. Two of the challenges to put Bone on the ALA's list took place in Texas, but both school, re- both school districts reviewed the books and opted to keep the series. Next up, we have what is basically a modern-day comics classic, something we've all at least heard of, if not read, and that is The Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Location of key challenge, various reason challenge, anti-family themes, offensive language, unsuited for age groups. Launched in 1989, The Sandman was a 75-issue comic book series that chronicled the misadventure struggles and complex relationships among seven mystical siblings. The series was released by DC Comics and became the flagship title for DC's Vertigo line. The series earned nine Eisner Awards and three Harvey Awards, and it was the first graphic novel to win a World Fantasy Award when it was named Best Short Story in 1991. Despite its many accolades, Neil Gaiman The Sandman was listed as one of the top band in the challenge graphic novels in 2010 by the American Library Association. The comic book series and graphic novels have been challenged and banned in libraries since its publication. Most often, opposition to the series has arisen when it has been shelved in the young adult section of the library. And finally, the last one I wanted to bring up here is Watchmen. Yes, Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. If it's not number one on the greatest graphic novels or comic stories of all times, it's number two behind you know Dark Knight. But it is also challenged. The location of key challenges is various. The reason challenged is unsuited to age group. Watchmen received a Hugo Award in 1988 and was instrumental in garnering more respect and shelf space for comics and graphic novels in libraries and mainstream bookstores. The inclusion of Watchmen in school library collections has been challenged by parents at least twice, according to the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. There is no media coverage of these challenges to be found online, but OIF helpfully provided a few more details from their database. The first Watchmen complaint at a school in Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is just an hour away from where I'm sitting right now, was reported in 2001. OIF removes specific identifying details from the information it releases to the public, but the high school library in Harrisonburg holds a copy of the book, so it appears the challenge was unsuccessful. The second challenge took place at a school serving grades 6 to 12 in Florida, but the city and outcome are unknown. And like I said, I just wanted to put up some examples of, of how comic books have been banned nowadays as opposed to the way they were in the 50s which we've all seen in documentaries and other things i'm going to take another break here and when i get back i'm going to take a look at books again i'm going to be back to books i'm going to talk about three of my favorite books that are on the frequently banded challenge list why they're on that list and well you know why i like them so much and encourage you to go out and read them if you haven't so stick around this is an imaginary podcast which may never have happened the Shortbox Showcase. But then again, may have. 
about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way. Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this Ultraman Taro, and this Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. So, like I said, I was going through the list of titles challenged from 2004 to 2011, and I discovered that 18 of the books on that list were books that teachers had assigned to me in either junior high school or high school. I also mentioned that three of those books, Fahrenheit 451, To Kill a Mockingbird, and The Catcher in the Rye, are three of my favorite books of all time. I don't think I have to explain the controversies over Catcher, as it's been well documented. After all, the book has enough foul language to make fainting couches come back into fashion. To Kill a Mockingbird still gets challenged from time to time because of its use of the N-word, despite the fact that that word is used in a context to show how racist some of the novel's characters are. But again, Context isn't something that people get all the time. Fahrenheit 451 is a history of censorship, the most recently being in 2006, when parents of a 10th grade high school student in Montgomery County, Texas, demanded the book be banned from their daughter's English class reading list. Their daughter was assigned the book during Banned Books Week, but stopped reading several pages in due to the offensive language and description of the burning of the Bible. In addition, her parents protested the violence portrayal of Christians, depictions of firemen in the novel. This is according to Wikipedia and ABC News, which is completely ironic if you kind of read all the way to the end and see how religion actually does kind of play a key role or, or there is there is a, a value to the Bible found toward the end of the book. And I think it's always kind of ironic that you would try to challenge or ban a book from a curriculum that is about how horrible it is to ban books. But, you know, that's just me. Anyway... Those are three books, but the three books that I wanted to talk about are separate from that because those are kind of the obvious ones. Three books I've enjoyed reading, in some cases teaching, that are worth reading. And, well, it's actually kind of surprising that sometimes these are banned or challenged somewhere, to be completely honest with you. So I'm going to go through them and make a little light of the challenges because some of them are a little bit ridiculous. And I encourage you to go out and and check out each one of them because they are well, well, well worth reading. Even if you've already read them once, read them again. Our first one is The Great Gatsby. 
That's right, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you are unfamiliar with the novel, honestly, it's such an English class standard, I'd be surprised if you are unfamiliar with it. The Great Gatsby is one of those novels that is considered a candidate for the, quote, great American novel. It's one of the best portraits of the downside of the American dream as well as the jazz age. At the same time, it's a timeless examination and in some ways a criticism of our culture's obsession with fame and fortune and how hollow that obsession can be. I looked up when it's been challenged on the ALA's website, and notable challenges come from the Baptist College of Charleston, South Carolina in 1987 because of, quote, language and sexual references in the book. And hey, it's about the Roaring Twenties and the debauchery contained within. You kind of can't get away with talking about the Roaring Twenties without, well, at least approaching sex. I taught this one years ago when I was teaching 11th grade English. I teach 10th grade English now. I have for the last seven years. And even though I first read it 20 years ago, uh, Gatsby's never lost its luster. And it still applies to today. I can look at Jay Gatsby and I can look at his whole party crew and I see everything that you see on your average Bravo or E-reality show and Kardashians and all these things. It is, it is such a prescient novel, even if it's almost 100 years old about 90 years old or so. So I would highly, highly recommend going back and giving it a reread. And honestly, skip the DiCaprio movie and tread lightly on the Redford movie, which is which is all right. But, but read the book. You won't be disappointed. The second one on my list here is Night by L.A. Wiesel. This is a memoir about the Holocaust, and I teach this memoir every year. This actually does get the occasional challenge because it has profanity and violence. Let me repeat that in case it doesn't sink in. Night has been challenged before because it has profanity and violence. A book about the Holocaust is violent and has profanity. I'll give you a moment. Now, Knight's not really challenged that often. It has ended up on the list, though. And I but I, and I had to honestly really dig for this, but it wasn't a list that I wanted to highlight, and not just because it's one of those books that stuck with me when I was in high school and when I started teaching sophomores, a book that I knew I was going to teach. In fact, this very brief memoir is one of the most completely raw looks at the Holocaust that, that you'll ever get when you're that age without really delving into... Um, the topic and studying it thoroughly. I like bringing in a lot of history with my English courses, and quite frankly, I'm always exhausted by the end of teaching night because every year we examine so much of what Weissel goes through, as so many as well as so many other aspects of the event, from Nazi propaganda to a great New York Times piece about survivors who have PTSD so badly that they're confined to a mental hospital and cannot wear pajamas even to this day. I'm not saying that you have to be like, you know, grab this book and give it to somebody and, and say you have to read this, but it is truly one of those books that, that is a must read, especially if you really want to understand a particular horrific piece of our recent history and experience it almost firsthand. You will walk away from it very numb if you have not read it. Uh, but it is, again, it is well worth the read, as are some of Weisel's other works. Uh, so I, I do recommend going out and picking up Night. My last book is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. 
If you haven't read this novel, you may remember the 1983 Francis Ford Coppola film. Uh, this starred 1980s mainstay C. Thomas Howell. Several future stars such as Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Matt Dillon, and Diane Lane. Yes, Michael, everything comes back to Superman. I realize that. Um, but anyway, this is probably the one novel that guys I teach who hate reading always point to as one book that they, quote, have actually read. And if you're unfamiliar with the book, it's about the trials and tribulations of a gang of greasers and their turf war with a rival gang of preps known as the Soches. Although it's more about what it's like to be stuck on the wrong side of the tracks and your fight against your circumstances and your fight to get out versus being swallowed up. Of course, the violence is usually the reason cited by people who want this book out of schools and libraries. The novel's Wikipedia page has a succinct section about the controversy over the book, and it says, quote, The Outsiders was a controversial book at the time of its publication. It was still a frequently challenged book nowadays. It was ranked number 38th on the American Library Association's top 100 most frequently challenged books of 1990 to 1999. This book has been banned from schools and libraries of because of the portrayal of gang violence, underage smoking and drinking, as well as strong language slash slang and family dysfunction. However, in many schools today, the book is part of the curriculum for middle and or high school. And honestly, it is a great book. Um, it, it, it's one of those those pieces. It's like an anomaly in, in a middle school high, English class where you're like, wow, you do kind of they're like wow this is this is literature this is so good um it's kind of the way that like i'll look at like west side story and sit through that and be like you know this is so good when it's a a broadway musical which i'm not a huge fan of broadway musicals and b based on one of my least 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 favorite plays of all time which is romeo and juliet i loathe romeo and juliet don't get me started on romeo and juliet the outsiders is just it's so again it's one of those visceral coming of age pieces that even if you haven't never been in a gang or haven't been ever before you can really really empathize with and sympathize with a lot of the characters in there and and if you haven't read that one in a good 20 or 25 years go pick that one up in fact all three of the books i just mentioned as well as catcher and and fahrenheit and mockingbird are easily available at your public library they're available in any bookstore or on amazon um mockingbird is probably the longest of that i think mockingbird runs about Two fifty three hundred pages, but Fahrenheit, Night, The Outsiders, and Gatsby all all run. They're, they're pretty slim. They all run between uh, you know one twenty to two hundred pages. I mean, they're they're very long. They're they're not very long. They're all pretty quick reads, and you know. <sighs> With all three of these, I, I, I can't help but chuckle sometimes at, at how these are challenges. And like I said, I, I, I didn't even get into the whole Harry Potter controversy uh, more than just mentioning it. Um, and like I said, the, the most challenged title was Captain Underpants last year. I mean, a kid's book because it had offensive language or was unsuited for a group and they had violence. I mean, that was the book that was challenged. And it's not a series that I'm very often... Um, I don't really read it. My son's never read it because we haven't been interested. But my um, my students, I told them, and they were like, I loved those books when I was a kid. So again, I mean, the poetry of Shel Silverstein, A Light in the Attic, has been challenged in libraries. It's just, we all make decisions as readers, and we all make decisions as parents. And to me, they're very personal choices that unless they are irreparably harmful to another person, 
should be personal choices. When you start trying to dictate through censorship, well, then that's when panneries smash, you know? But seriously, I encourage you to check out the list of banned books and challenged books. Check out what the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and the American Library Association do for Banned Books Week. I encourage you to go to your local library and check out at least one of the books that's on that list and read it, especially if it's one you haven't read since you were in junior high or high school. You'll find you get different perspectives on the old literature that you read 20 years later because you have a much more different perspective on on life to be honest with you and you might rediscover something that you haven't thought about in years if you choose to read something that's out of your normal wheelhouse or even challenges your own belief system you also might find it more rewarding than you initially thought and that's the challenge i offer to you guys this is a very short episode, I realize. I threw it together a week after my Baltimore Comic Con episode, and, and I certainly enjoyed interacting with uh, having a quick conversation with a couple of people from CBLDF when I was at the booth and, and going to the panel that I went to. They, they sponsor some good stuff every year, and I'm hoping to see them again next year, maybe go a little more in-depth for a Band Book Weeks episode. But as for me, I will be back in October. I will have episode 37 of the show, which will be another part of my 1994, the most important year of the 90s series. And we'll cover, well, the only thing I could possibly cover for episode 37 of this show. Plus, I will have with me a highly exalted special guest. Yes, His Excellency, Trentus Magnus, shall be coming by to discuss what else clerks. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. This is not it.